On the day we arrived in Robben Island, came by boat from the mainland to the island, we then landed in Robben Island. And they said, Toto, uh, in either words, we must walk in twos, two in front and two in the back. Now, they treat you like cattle, like this, and they say, Hack, when they say move. Hack. Hack is the Afrikaans word for move but it's a verb normally used for cattle. And then they stopped us, and they said, look here, we will kill you, and your parents, your people will never know what has happened to you, and we're giving you a last warning. I was determined in that time we should put our stamp clearly right from the first day, we must fight, because that would determine how we're going to be treated. When the judge at the Ravonia trial handed down a sentence of life imprisonment instead of death in June of 1964, Mandela and his comrades were relieved, to put it mildly. But that life imprisonment was to be on Robben Island, South Africa's Alcatraz. The South African authorities believed that by sending Mandela and his comrades to Robben Island, no one would ever hear of them again. They were wrong about that. Robin Island had been a prison since the 17th century. For a time, starting in the 19th century, it was a leper colony. Just four miles off the coast of Cape Town, Robin Island is rocky, windswept, austere. It's less than a mile long. It has more seals and penguins than prisoners. In Dutch, Robin means seal. But everyone just called it the island. There was only one. From the beginning, it wasn't just any prison. It was where political prisoners were taken. The first African political prisoner in South African history was the Koza warrior and chief, Makana, who had revolted against the British colonialists. Mandela had first heard about Makana when he was a boy. Makana had been imprisoned on Robben Island in the 19th century and drowned trying to escape. Chief Makana was a hero to Mandela. Maybe it's an optical illusion, but when you stand on the beach on Robben Island and look at the twinkling lights of Cape Town, it feels like you can touch them that must have been torture for the prisoners. It's also, well, beautiful. At the end of the Ravonia trial, the government had a choice. They could separate the Ravonia trialists and send them to different prisons all over South Africa, or they could keep them together in one place. They worried that if they separated them, each one would be like an individual germ that would infect the entire prison. They were scared of that, so they decided to keep them together. It turned out that staying together is what kept them strong. Mandela had actually been to Robben Island once before, very briefly, for a few weeks after he was convicted in 1962. Then, as after Ravonia, he saw his first few days on the island as a test. He had to establish that he would not be intimidated. He wanted to show that they were not criminals who had committed crimes. They were freedom fighters who had stood up for justice. They were first and always political prisoners. 
From the start, Mandela had a larger vision of his imprisonment. He saw his behavior on Robben Island as a microcosm of his struggle for freedom and his battle against white supremacy. When we arrived, they asked us to crush stones to make gravel. And they big stone, they bring big stones, they had one on the ground, and then you have a hammer, and you break the stones on this big stone from about 7 o'clock, half past 7 to 4 o'clock. During their early days on the island, the prisoners sat in a dirt courtyard crushing stones into gravel. It was mind-numbing work. They sat in the bright sun. They weren't allowed to talk. The warders wanted to show who was boss. Mandela wanted to show that the prisoners were human beings with rights who needed to be treated with dignity. That was the first struggle that we had. And we started action of going slow, going low, and just sometimes feeling off, sometimes feeling uh, three quarters. And that uh, they would punish us. But we stuck to that. How did they punish you? Well, uh, they send you to isolation. And you miss about three meals. Sometimes you three days missing meals. Except just water, rice water, and nothing else. The second thing that we fought was the food. Those go-slow strikes were their way of protesting. The food was a constant problem. One of the first things Mandela objected to was that African prisoners were given short pants, not long trousers. He hated this. This was the uniform of the garden boy. The unspoken idea was that Africans were boys and therefore should wear short pants. He protested to the authorities. You successfully objected? Well, uh, I successfully objected because they first gave me, they gave me long trousers. But Mandela returned the pants in solidarity with the other black prisoners. Food in prison, like clothing and everything else in apartheid South Africa, was separate and unequal. Millis for lunch. Then in the evening, you get porridge again, a dish full of porridge, sometimes with vegetables only. And uh, the porridge is so watery that uh, the vegetable, either a carrot or um, some cabbage or beetroot, it just sinks into the porridge. And then on alternative days, you got a piece of meat during the evening. That is what Africans got. Oh, by the way, we would also get coffee in the morning, all of us. But this coffee was made out of millis, of maize. Mm. They took maize and baked it until it was black. And then they ground it up. They ground it into fine powder and they gave it to us as coffee. And uh, again, with sugar, which you could never taste. Maybe that's why he didn't care for coffee. Although there were no white prisoners on the island, there were Indian prisoners and colored prisoners. Now, the Africans got the poorest diet, and it was far inferior to that of colors and Indians, and even more inferior to that of whites. For example, in the morning, you get a, got a dish full of porridge with just a teaspoon of brown sugar. Then at lunch, you got just millis 
I think in the States you give it to cows or something. Right, horses. That's right, horses. In South Africa, mealies refers to corn. It was a staple of the black South African diet. The prisoners were all classified by race. Indian and colored prisoners were allowed a spoonful of white sugar. Africans were only permitted a spoonful of brown sugar, which was cheaper and seen as lower class. No one then seemed to know that it was healthier. In apartheid South Africa, the term colored referred to people of mixed race. It was a separate classification to white, black, and Indian, which was sometimes called Asian. Unlike in America, coloreds didn't refer to black people, but was for anyone who had a mixed race parentage. In those days, if you were classified as colored, you had more rights than blacks, but significantly less than whites. Still, it's a charged term in all kinds of ways. Now, we're classified Africans, then coloreds. Well, of course, uh, it's so difficult to refer to this group. So you have to be careful, especially in my own autobiography. Mandela never wanted to offend anyone. By the 1990s, when we were talking, people often used the term so-called colored. Many so-called colored insisted on being called black. But there were also hundreds of thousands of people in South Africa's Cape province who were proud to be called colored. They spoke Afrikaans and tended to be more conservative politically than black South Africans who lived farther north. For them, it wasn't a term of discrimination, but identity. For me, as an American, it always felt awkward to use the term. It took me back to a past that I didn't want to return to. One of the diabolical parts of apartheid was how petty it was. It permeated every aspect of life, no matter how small. The authorities used to measure the size of your curls to determine whether you were black or colored. There were all kinds of bewildering distinctions. For example, Japanese visitors to South Africa were considered honorary whites, but Chinese visitors were considered colored. Mandela found some of these distinctions ironic, but he was always extremely careful about the use of any term that referred to color. Mandela and the Ravonia trialists lived in what was known as Section B, a low rectangular stone building with a dirt courtyard and a catwalk for a warder with a shotgun. The cells were two meters by two meters, about six and a half feet by six and a half feet, with heavy metal doors and a tiny barred window about five feet high. They had straw mats to sleep on, no beds, no mattresses, no toilets. The Ravonia prisoners were kept separate and isolated from what were known as common law prisoners on the island. Speaking of imprisonment, could you lie down in your cell? Was it the ce- the cell seemed so small? <laughs> yeah. That I didn't. I thought you'd have to scrunch up like that. Yeah. No. No. It, 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 they were clever. You just fitted. Oh. I had a bed, and uh, I just fitted in the bed. Oh. <laughs> A few months into our interviews, I visited Robben Island. I wanted to see Mandela's actual cell, where he spent 17 years. I remember he was quite excited when I told him I was going. Did they take you to my cell? Did they show you my cell? They showed you, yeah, they showed me your cell. Oh, I see, dude. Oh. It, it was number four or number eight? 
something like that, you know? They said it was number four. Number four? Yeah. I think that's right. One, yes, quite. It was number four. It's definitely yeah. number four. Okay. I took some pictures yes, yes. of it also. Quite, quite right. Quite yeah. right. Hmm. I actually gasped when I saw it. Mandela was a big man in every way, six foot two inches tall. The cell was tiny, closet-sized. I just didn't see how it could contain him. I had two Afrikaans warders who escorted me around. When I saw Mandela's cell, I motioned to my guide that I wanted to lie down myself. But the lead guard who had been escorting me around the island firmly nodded his head no. One day, after the first few years of working in the courtyard, the authorities marched Mandela and his comrades to a vast lime quarry where they used picks and shovels to separate the lime from stone and earth. It became the place where they worked day in, day out, year after year. During the first few weeks at the quarry, their hands became blistered and bloody. They took us to the quarry to dig lime. Now, that is a very difficult operation because you use a pick. The lime is in layers of rock. You find a rock layer, rocky layer, and to get to the lime, you have to break that layer, that rock layer. You then get the lime, you scoop it out, and then you come to another layer of rock. And in order to get the lime, you have to break through that rock. And to break through that rock is not very easy. So what we did, they, they sent us there because they wanted to show us that to come to jail is not an easy thing, it's not a picnic, and you must never come to jail again. The lime reflected the sun's harsh glare, and Mandela requested sunglasses. It took years for the authorities to approve them. When we took our early morning walks in the Transkai, he often used to wear that same pair of dark glasses. The prison warders on the island, especially during their first few years, could be brutal. They were mostly young, rural, uneducated Afrikaans men who had grown up regarding blacks as inferior, and their job as guards was to keep them down. But the political prisoners were different. They were better educated than the guards. They had been professionals. Some had been professors. They spoke much better English. Some of them spoke better Afrikaans. Sometimes the guards took their frustration out on the prisoners. And sometimes the political prisoners made fun of the guards. So a water, a water comes and he says, look, you must work. And uh, you talk too much, but you work too few. You see, as was his way of saying, you don't do the work. You talk too much, but you work very little. He says, you talk too much, and, uh, but you work too few. So we laughed at this and uh, eventually charged us. But uh, they took us with Masondo uh, to isolation. But Mandela had sympathy for the guards. He saw them as victims of a racist system that rewarded brutish behavior. He used to say that apartheid dehumanized the oppressor as well as the oppressed. Mandela did his best to befriend them, to try to make them see the limits of their own prejudice. This also had a practical side. Warders could make your life miserable or easier. 
For example, you want uh, four blankets in winter. The commanding officer, the what do you call the commissioner of prisons or the minister of justice, is going to say, what does regulation say? Regulation says you must have three blankets. I can't give you the fourth blanket. Because if I do, I will have to go give others as well. But um, a warder in your section, if you are friendly with him and you say, look, I want a, an extra blanket, he just goes to the storehouse, takes a blanket and gives it to you. So you must always, I, I, I learned uh, quite early as a prisoner, that uh, you must make friends uh, with a warder who is charging the section. Mandela quickly established himself as the leader of the political prisoners on Robben Island. In some ways, he was like the mayor of Section B, making sure everything was working and that his comrades had blankets and food and got their mail. But he had other ways of helping as well. His law degree came in handy in prison. I was reading over the weekend about how you in prison used to represent other prisoners, and that was against regulations? Yes. Oh, yes. Um, but eventually they allowed that. Yes. How did that happen? I mean, it... No, by insisting mm-hmm. and uh, setting your right. They had to accept because um, when a man fights, even the enemies do not respect you, especially if you fight intelligently. Mandela was stubborn. He would insist on something over and over and over. When he was turned down, he would try again. One day, he witnessed an assault of a prisoner by a guard. He asked to see the head of prison, who questioned Mandela's claim. Here is what he told him. All that I say, this is wrong. I have seen it. What are you going to do about it? There are few sentences that embody Nelson Mandela better than, this is wrong. I have seen it. What are you going to do about it? If he was blocked at one level, he would try the next. If he was completely blocked, he might try to leak something to the press. And sometimes he did. They feared that. And I was persistent that there are cases where I took up the matter and eventually went to the Minister of Justice. And when no improvement happened, then I smuggled a letter out and uh, reported the thing to the press. So when I went there to them and I said... If you don't attend to this, I know what to do. Then, of course, they feared because of previous experience. So in that way, you know, they allowed me to talk for other, for other prisoners. It's hard to overstate how important it was that Mandela was a lawyer in prison. He knew the prison regulations better than his guards did. And he intimidated them with his knowledge. The last thing they wanted was to be taken to court. Mandela always tried to do for people what they could not do for themselves. He represented the interests of his fellow prisoners. And mostly, those interests were pretty basic. More food, better food, less harshness, more privileges, like getting more than one letter every six months or having access to books and newspapers to study. Food was often the basis of protest. Mostly, the prisoners protested that the food was inedible, but sometimes they used food to protest against a larger injustice. There were only a few avenues of protest in prison, and one of them was refusing to eat, a hunger strike. 
how do you uh, uh, deal with the hunger, with the with the pain of not eating? Oh no, it's it's relative, relatively easy. You feel it the first day, but the second day already uh, you get used to it. Third day, you don't uh, feel anything except that uh, you are not as energetic mm -hmm. as they used to be. But uh, it's something you get used to it. The human body has got uh, enormous capacity for adjusting, especially if uh, you can link up, you can coordinate your thinking, your whole spiritual approach to the physical one. And uh, if you convince that you're doing something right, that you're demonstrating to the authorities that uh, you can defend your rights and fight back. You don't feel it at all. For Mandela, right always made might. That was one of the few times that he ever mentioned spirituality, and he linked it to protest against injustice. But even though he would participate in hunger strikes, Mandela always preferred active resistance to passive resistance. I was never a convinced disciple of the hunger strike because, in my view, it had the victim rather than uh, the oppressor. It was too passive a method of uh, political protest. And I had always favored something more upfront, something more assertive, something uh, which uh, the authorities would feel, not so much uh, because of pressure from outside, uh, as a result of people going on hunger strike and therefore threatening their health, even uh, courting death. That was, uh, there is that aspect uh, which makes the authorities act and uh, consider your demands. They did not do all that many hunger strikes in prison, but I wanted to include his description of it because it offers such a direct insight into who he was. He favored action, something more upfront, something more assertive. That's who he was. Yes, he was thoughtful and empathetic and sometimes even spiritual, but he was always biased in favor of action. This is wrong. I have seen it. What are you going to do about it? But Mandela was also an optimist. Optimism was not so much how he viewed reality, it was how he was wired. No matter how dark things got, he was always confident that light would win out. Although we had the serious difficulties, there were bright moments where some orders would treat you, you know, as um, human beings. Now, then uh, there was, of course, things like newspapers, because we're not allowed to get newspapers. Some very kind orders, I would bring a newspaper and leave it behind, forget it deliberately behind, and would take it. Others would give you a newspaper. Newspapers were like gold to them. In the beginning, they had no news at all, no radios, no TV, no way of communicating with the outside world except by letter, and they were only permitted to write one letter every six months. Newspapers were a window to the outside world, one of the only ways they could see if the struggle continued 
and whether their own struggle had been forgotten. I don't know if Mandela loved newspapers before he went to prison, but he certainly did when we worked together. He loved reading the paper. Sometimes he would lay it down flat on a table and slowly turn every page from front to back. Sometimes he would lean back in an easy chair and read it from front to back. In prison, they spent a lot of time thinking about how they could get their hands on a paper, any paper, even Afrikaans newspapers. Sometimes a friendly warder would deliberately leave behind a newspaper in one of their cells. Then, whoever had the paper would memorize the relevant portions and brief his fellow prisoners. So one day it was raining, and uh, water gave me a newspaper, and I started reading it. I made a mistake because it was during the day. I started reading it during the day, and uh, suddenly the officers and warders came in, searched and found this newspaper, and then uh, I was charged. I was sent to isolation for three days without food, except, you know, some uh, rice water, but without food. That was the first time I wanted to isolation. The isolation section was at one end of Section B. It was just a stone box with a tiny high window. He never complained about isolation. One morning when we were talking about the island, Mandela signaled to me that he wanted my pad and pen. I handed them to him. As always, he did it slowly and meticulously. Now, the building in which we were was something like this. This was A. This was B. This was C. Okay. Now, here were our cells. And uh, then this was the isolation section. Mm -hmm. Isolation section. This was also an isolation section at the first. When he was done, I asked him to sign it. For a moment, he was perplexed and then smiled and wrote his name. I framed that map and still keep it above my desk. After the grimness of the early years on the island... Mandela and his fellow prisoners did begin to see small victories in the late 1960s and early 1970s. One of those small victories had to do with the prisoners singing while working in the quarry. One of the tunes the prisoners sang was Shoshaloza, a traditional mining song that Mandela would have heard when he was growing up. Shoshaloza means moving forward. Its lyrics also contain a double meaning of showing support for the struggle. Then the authorities realized that, no, these chaps you see are too militant. They're in high spirits. And they say, no singing uh, as you're working. So you really felt the toughness uh, of the work. And um, so they banned the singing. And of course, they had a regulation in the disciplinary code, which banned singing. But they kept singing. But of course, uh, we, uh, although we listened to them, but uh, when we went back to ourselves, especially on the eve of Christmas and New Year, we organized uh, singing concerts and we sang. The warders got tired of trying to enforce the no singing policy. 
So they eventually got used to that. Mandela also fought for books in prison. He never stopped studying and reading. On Robben Island, he studied for his LLB, his Bachelor of Law degree. He had never finished his actual degree at the University of Witzfatersrand, where he had been the only black law student. He once requested a book on the law of torts, the law that covers most civil lawsuits, but he was refused. He asked why, and the chief warder said, Mandela, why do you want a book on the law of torches? The Afrikaans word for torch is tort, T-O-O-R-T. He also continued writing. Now, um, you mentioned, uh, you haven't told me this story, but I have read a little bit about it. Uh, the story of um, hiding your manuscript in, in the drain pipe outside. How did, that, how did that actually work physically? There was a drain pipe outside of your cell? You see it? Have you got a clean sheet of paper? Yeah. Mandela drew his cell for me and made an X where he hid his manuscript. In the 1980s, Mandela's colleagues came up with the idea of him writing a memoir that would then be published in the outside world. He agreed to do it and secretly began working on it late at night. That manuscript was given to me when I first signed up to work with him. He would write during the night, then pass what he had written to other prisoners, who would then copy it out in tiny handwriting on small pieces of paper, including toilet paper, before destroying his pages. Well, I was reading somewhere that, the, that um, you would use paper that was very thin and write very small. Yes, that's true. Oh, yes. He had secret ways of producing his writing in prison and hiding it. When we talked about it in 1993, Mandela was still reluctant to explain how it worked. So what was the way? No, you see, we mustn't uh, disclose that. When we were writing his autobiography, Mandela was not yet president. South Africa hadn't held an election yet, and in his mind, it was possible the country would end up in a racial civil war. Who knows? He might have to use those same techniques again. But writing the manuscript was one thing. Smuggling it out was another. I took it out to see the method to see which they don't know why I took it out. And that method is still valid today. And we won't be able to put that in your autobiography, how it came out? No, 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 no. Uh, I, 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 I can't say that it came out with a prisoner, uh, but uh, it would be, I wouldn't like to say so-and-so put it out. The tiny bits of paper were assembled and then put in the lining of a suitcase. That suitcase was carried out by his comrade, Mac Maharaj, when he was released from Robben Island in 1976. Oh, no, you know, the the, the prisoners, the the warders, by the way, suspected that was doing something. Right. Because uh, I would wait until um, after eight, and uh, I would sleep... Uh, uh, very early, and about uh, 9 o'clock or 10, when the traffic has come down, I start writing. And then uh, during the day, I would be drowsy, uh, sleep early, get up. And then the water would go to others, people like Mac. What is Mandela doing there? 
uh, why is he writing and sitting up late? And um, so they were suspicious that I was doing something. But I wrote and I finished the, the manuscript. Mandela, of course, didn't want the prison authorities to know he was writing a memoir. The idea of the memoir was that it would tell not only his story, but would document racial oppression in South Africa. When I finally read it, I also understood why it had never been published before. Amidst some lovely writing about his growing up and early schooling, there were long sections of Marxist-Leninist theory. They're pretty dreary. But that was not the only writing he was doing. He was also writing letters, letters which were more personal and intimate. The rules about letters and visits were particularly harsh. In the beginning, only one of each every six months. And those visits were not very satisfying. The authorities made them as difficult and impersonal as possible. You had a glass partition and uh, your visitor stood on one side and you were on the other side. And uh, there was a warder behind you. There was a warder behind your visitor to make sure that uh, you talked only about family matters. Don't explain about uh, the situation in the prison, prison conditions. And they were very strict. And sometimes they would cancel a visit if you ignored a warning and talked about conditions in jail or about other prisoners. How long were the visits? Uh, at first, 30 minutes. So you have to wait for six months and only to speak for 30 minutes. Then uh, they uh, extended it to an hour, but they made 30 minutes your right and the other 30 minutes a privilege. When I visited Robben Island, I actually sat at one of those desks and tried to look through the glass. You could barely see anything on the other side. It must have been excruciating for Mandela and the other Ravonia trialists. Of course, they wanted the full hour, but to get that, they had to behave. They had to follow the rules, even when they thought the rules were absurd or repressive. That was the leverage the guards had over them. This was particularly hard for him because he was deeply concerned about his wife, Winnie. She was in her mid-twenties. They had only been married four years, and during most of that time, he had been underground. They had two small daughters together, both toddlers. He told me several times that he believed Winnie had it harder than he did. Here I was with a woman with whom I have married. I had been married, you see, for four years when uh, I was uh, sent to jail. And uh, she was a very young person, inexperienced. She had two children, and uh, she couldn't bring them up properly because of the harassment and persecution by the police. He knew what Winnie was up against. The authorities penalized her because of him. She had become an activist on the front lines of the struggle and was often arrested and intimidated by the police. Mandela never missed an opportunity to write her from prison. You know, I was thinking of her, of course, every day. And uh, also I wanted her to give her encouragement to know that there is somebody somewhere who cares for her. I think here he's deliberately underplaying what he felt. 
During the time we were working together, he had recently separated from Winnie. I believe he was still wounded by that. He made copies of many of those letters to Winnie. I've read them. Have a listen. Here's one from 1976. My dearest Winnie, I have been fairly successful in putting on a mask behind which I have pined for the family, alone, never rushing for the post when it comes until somebody calls out my name. I also never linger after visits, although sometimes the urge to do so becomes quite terrible. I am struggling to suppress my emotions as I write this letter. Letters from you and the family are like the arrival of summer rains and spring that liven my life and make it enjoyable. Whenever I write you, I feel that inside physical warmth that makes me forget all my problems. I become full of love. His letters to Winnie are the most personal, the most intimate glimpses into Mandela's mind and heart. The mask that he wore for almost everyone else was taken off for her. They're romantic. They're emotional. They're even a little needy. In one, he talks about kissing her picture every night before he went to bed. But there was something else at work here. He knew he had to buck her up. She was looking after their two children together. She had been thrust into the political struggle only after she married him and was now leading protests and being harassed by the authorities. He felt deeply responsible for her and that he was unable to support her the way he would have wanted to. He felt guilty. During the Robin Island years, Mandela pined for her, and sometimes there were small moments of grace. It was Christmas, and the warder in charge was like a very good warder. And we asked him to see if we could kiss our wives, and he said yes. So we went round, they said, to their waiting room and kissed them. And they had a chat with them. Ah, so that, the, that no, uh, the prison authorities didn't know about that? No, 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 it was just between ourselves and the, that water. Uh-huh. But there were many more heartbreaking moments in prison. Moments made immeasurably worse as you were without the consolation of family. The prison authorities did not make it any easier for them. Now, one thing that we've never really discussed is um, uh, the death of your son. Oh, Tendi. yes. Mm. Um, how, how did you find out? Did they call you to the office? Well, yes. They got a telegram from uh, my second son, and they told me that uh, his the brother died. That's what happened. And? They called me to the reception office and told me this, and I just took the telegram and went back. Tembi was Mandela's oldest son and his favorite. He was a bright boy who worshipped his father. Tembi had been devastated by his parents' divorce, and even though he was then married and living in Cape Town when Mandela was on Robben Island, he had not visited his father or even written to him. The telegram Mandela received simply said that Tembi had died in a car crash. I asked for permission to attend the funeral, but they, that was refused. Mandela was wounded by his son's death, but he always internalized his pain. I was really devastated yeah. to lose a son, your eldest son, uh, to whom I was very much attached, and I had no opportunity enough uh, paying my respects to his memory by attending the funeral. And... Uh, 
seeing to the expenses of the funeral myself mm -hmm. and uh, making sure that uh, he rested very well and peacefully. That was uh, very devastating. And there's, I suppose, this special attachment to one's first son, eldest son. He has yes, quite. Yes, I was very attached to him. Mandela returned to his cell. The only person he saw was Walter Susulu, his great friend and ANC comrade. According to his other comrades, Walter went into Mandela's cell and the two men held hands silently. Less than a year before his son was killed, Mandela's mother passed away. The South African authorities didn't allow Mandela to attend that funeral either. In the case of both Mandela's mother and son, he felt an unfillable hole of guilt. His mother had actually visited him on the island some months before. She had been very frail. He wondered whether she understood why he was there. In the case of Tembi, the boy never accepted the divorce from his mother, and Mandela never had the opportunity to explain it to him. In many ways, I think Mandela's focus on their funerals is a way of deflecting the regret and guilt he felt at their deaths. I believe he felt he had failed them. You wrote somewhere, I don't have it down here where. It was in a letter he wrote to Winnie from prison. But uh, the following. Sometimes I feel like one who is on the sidelines, who has missed life itself. Was that a feeling that you sometimes had in prison? That, that things No, when you get uh, news of that nature, that your son has died, your mother has died, and you can't be respected enough uh, to be trusted that you would go and attend uh, to such a family tragedy and come back on seventh day. You feel that uh, your feelings are not accommodated and not understood by these people. That's how I felt. Mm -hmm. That's a lonely feeling. Mm. That hmm, which you've heard before, is Mandela's way of saying he's done talking about something. I was always trying to get him to emote, to express his feelings. It was difficult. He was of that generation of men who didn't feel comfortable expressing emotion. Plus, he had developed a world-class filter, and he did not believe that his supporters wanted to hear him feeling sorry for himself. He always wanted to appear resolute, and he always was. As difficult as the island was, it was also a place apart. As much as he wanted to be part of the world, he couldn't be. That had its consolations. In the years after getting out of prison, his great comrade Walter Sasula used to joke, I haven't had a good night's sleep since leaving prison. When I mentioned this one day to Mandela, he smiled. Once, when we were walking together in the countryside in the Transkai, Mandela said to me that working outside on Robben Island in some ways took him back to his childhood. The childhood that in so many ways formed the man we have come to know. Let's take a visit.